Good morning for everybody. I hope you're awake. And I have a, a proposition to you. Who needs one of these life jackets this morning? Anyone? I mean, I got one pink for ladies and one blue for boys. D does anybody need a, one of these life jackets? Do you feel comfortable? Do you think you need it? Well, you are comfortable sitting, right? Maybe you don't need it this morning. But I have the offer. John, you want one? Are you sure? Eh? Are you going to wear all the, the entire service? <laughs> the reason why not many people are eager to accept my offer is because not many, many people think that we are in a desperate situation. We are not in the ocean. We are not in the middle of a tempest. There's no storms. There's no need to get a hold of one of these guys and just wear them. We are not in what we perceive as a state of emergency. We are comfortable. At least you are sitting right there where you are, secure. You are in your Sunday best, not in your swimming best. So you don't need it. That's why you're scrambling to get in front of the auditorium and get one of these guys. But let me tell you something. Even though you cannot see the stormy seas, we are all, all y'all, you and me, on a state of emergency. We are drowning in the turbulent ocean of sin. Each one of us came into this world sinful. We, by birth, were sinners, and we are growing through life by decision being sinners. We continue in that pattern of sinful behavior. So we are all under the oppression of sin. Sin has overtaken us, yet a life jacket has been offered to us. The question is, would you accept it? The Apostle Paul doesn't mince his words in the book of Romans. In the last four weeks, we have been studying the first two chapters of the book of Romans. And so far in these four sermons, we are being bombarded by so many things and we feel awful. And I'm glad that you are feeling that way because that was the purpose that Paul had when he was reading this letter. He wanted us to make sure that we understand the complexity of living a sinful life and how desperate we are. These first three chapters point a dire picture. First, that we are universally sinful. All of us, you, me, we are all. There is not one just we read, you read the last time. We are totally deprived. If sin was of the color blue, we all become the Smurfs here. <laughs> Everywhere. I sound, sounds better in Spanish. We all become pitufos. 
and we are helplessly lost. So we are sinful, we are depraved, and we are helplessly lost. This is the message that the first three chapters of the book of Romans are telling us. So that makes us feel a little bit kind of uh, uncomfortable. But not just uncomfortable, desperate sometimes. Asking the question that Job did in Job 9-2 when he asked, But how can a man be right before God? How can a man be in a right relationship with God? And Paul is trying to answer these questions in this passage that we're going to study this morning. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther, when he get to this passage, he grappled with, with the same question. How can I, a sinner, stand in the presence of a holy and righteous God and not be consumed by it? This brings us to Romans chapter 3. Specifically, verses 21 to 26. This is an amazing section, and I want you to pay attention. If you are kind of sleepy, wake up. <laughs> and if the person next to you is sleeping, just elbow him or elbow her. Because let me tell you, based on what I read this week, this little section, these six verses are known, are being called as the center and the heart of the entire book of Romans. Even Leon Morris says that this passage, Romans 3, 21 to 26, is the most important single paragraph ever written. And I was surprised when he said paragraph. When I discovered that in the Greek, in the New Testament Greek, these verses, 21 to 26, are just one sentence. Is divided for us in six verses. It's a long thing. This is the one that Paul, when he was dictating the letter or he was writing it, he held his breath and said the whole thing in one sentence. That's why it's considered the most important sentence. And I, I will be brave to say that not only the most important sentence in the book of Romans, I think it's the most important sentence in the entire Bible. So that piqued your curiosity. Paul's message here is very profound. God does what we cannot do for ourselves. And the good news of the gospel is he already done it. He already did what you and I cannot do for ourselves. So the life jacket is right here in front of you, and I'm not talking about this one. I'm talking about these news who are becoming a lifeline for many who still are in doubt about their relationship with Christ. Now, what Paul is, is, is telling us in this passage are actually three bare assertions. The first one is God's righteousness is a free gift, and this is the main idea of this message. If you want to write something, if you want to remember something, remember this, because this is the summary of the entire message this morning. God's righteousness is a free gift with eternal receipt, available to all and paid, by, and paid for by 
Christ on the cross. God's righteousness is a free gift with an eternal receipt available to all and paid for by Christ at the cross. Believe it or not, this entire sentence is going to take us the entire 35, 40 minutes to describe. So let's go to the heart of the matter. Open your Bibles, open your Bible app, and try to find this verse. Romans 3, verse 21. The phrase, the righteousness of God, appears at least eight times in the letter of Romans. And in this passage, the righteousness of God is actually the key that will open the prison that in which we are, the spiritual prison in which we are prisoners because of our sinful nature. This is the question responded at the beginning, saying, how can you and I enter into a right relationship with God? Well, today we're going to see the answer of that. And it's going to be happening in three, time, in three sections, three aspects. The problem of righteousness, we're going to talk about it first. The provision of righteousness, number two. And number three, the price of righteousness. That's going to be the division of these six verses. So let's go to the first one. The problem of righteousness. Romans 3, 21. This part will set the stage, but the explanation of God's righteousness, what it is, and, and in many ways, why humanity desperately needed, why you and I needed. Here Paul is, is talking to us about a transformative, you're back to the book of Romans, and walking us all the way through the different places in our lives and bringing us to the light. There is a big difference between verse 20 and verse 21. In verse 20, we are all submerged into the difficulty life as a sinful life. No hope, no, no help. We are desperate. But then, in verse 20, there is a little phrase at the beginning of the passage. Two words, but now. And believe me, those two words represent the key for you to open those gates that imprison you spiritually. Because now Paul is changing directions. He's given us, after four weeks for us of bad news, he's presenting us with the good news. The bad news has to do with you and me. We are sinners. We deserve death. But the good news has to be with God. He has been providing for you a life jacket so you can be safe. So he will see this phrase, but now, it's like those words that you can hear from a doctor when he says, you know what? The surgery was a success. Thank goodness. Or, a rescue announcer, we found your little girl. She's safe. Hallelujah. They offer a pivot into a moment of change, a point of transformation. So these words are important. So I want you to commit a sacrilege 
mark those words in your Bible. Get a pen and circle it because it's important for you to understand this good news. Here's what we see that the law has failed to the standard. In verse 21, we read, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Verse 21. This is crucial. It's important to understand what Paul is trying to say here. He says, the law, the Greek word for law is nomos. It serves like a mirror. It serves like a mirror reflecting our need for righteousness, but never functioning as a ladder to climb our way out. The law is just like a mirror telling us, you are bad. But that's all what, we, what the law can do. It cannot help us to get better or get well. So there is a standard that God has because he is holy and he is just. So the standard that God has for you and me is holiness, perfection. You and I are called by God to become perfect. Holy, like he is. That's his standard. If you are not perfect, you are missing the mark. And that phrase is what in Spanish and English, in any language, the Greek word hamartia, sin, is missing the mark. Not getting to the standard that God has for all of us. That standard of perfection. It was a standard we could never meet. A teacher pointing out the flaws by offering no correction. That's what the law is for all of us. Imagine trying to cure a disease just with a mere diagnosis, not giving you any treatment. And people sometimes are desperately trying to help themselves, trying to be better on their own strengths. So the law cannot help us. It only can show us who we really are. Think of a, a medical scan, an MRI or a, a CAT scan. The scan will show you where the tumor is, the disease, the tissue, the problems. X-rays will show you where the broken bone is, right? You see it. And you realize that you need help. You need a doctor. So the same way the law reveals our spiritual malignancy. It tells us that we need help. But the law cannot help us. And for that, we need a divine physician. That's exactly what Paul is saying in just one verse. Can you imagine? But it's getting better. Because the need for that Righteousness of God is universal. Everyone falls short of God's righteousness. No one, not just the thief, not just the liar, not just the murderer, every single one of us. Our inability to keep the law has been outlined by Paul here in no certain terms, but we are all in need of righteousness that we cannot produce on our own. So when we understand God's high standard, 
That reveals the depth of our need. Like someone has been diagnosed with a terminal ill, but in many ways, the prognosis might scare the person, but we are universally, totally depraved and helplessly lost. Let, let me give you this example. I am, a, believe it or not, a five foot seven in my better days. Sometimes it feels like I'm shrinking. I, 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 I jump. Believe it or not, I can jump. I used to play basketball. I was not really good at it, but I used to play it. But I was not good as many of my friends who were taller than me. Here, some of you might be better than me at jumping. We probably can get a basketball and try to hit into that hood or jump, and some of you might, might hang it. But if you and I, even the best of you who can jump 2.5 meters, that is eight feet, which is the record, are here, and that person and any of us can jump to reach the ceiling of this building. We might jump higher than others, but certainly no one, no one can reach the ceiling. A am I okay saying that? Or can you reach the ceiling by just jumping? No, right? That is exactly what we're talking about. No one can hit the ceiling. No one is completely yes. No one is good. You can try. You can pretend it. You can believe it. But the truth is, you are not just. Apart from the law and foretold for the law. So that's exactly what we read here. Paul is saying that the law and the prophets, and when we read in the Bible the law and the prophets, he's talking about the entire Old Testament. And I, I know that some of you would prefer to read the New Testament and say, I'm a New Testament person. <laughs> Believe me, you need to be a Bible person because the Old Testament is important. And in the book of Romans, is so many places where Paul is quoting for the Old Testament. The Old Testament. That's why he's referring here to the law and the prophet. The law are the five first books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Penta five, from Exodus to Deuteronomy, and then the rest are called the prophet, the writings. So the entire Old Testament, Paul is saying here, is talking about this. He's telling you that you and I are sinners. Believe it or not, grace can be found in the Old Testament. Faith can be found in the Old Testament. The representation of Christ can be found in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is pointing in the future to the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one. The New Testament is referring back to the Messiah that already came. So the Bible completely is pointing us to the cross, to what Jesus did on our behalf. So the righteousness Paul is talking about here is not new in invention. It was a witness by the law and the prophets covering the entire span of the Old Testament scriptures. From Abraham, from David, from the sacrificial system, the duties of the priests, the reign of the kings, all these were prefigurations or foreshadows of the righteous, the righteousness of God, the righteousness that will come through Jesus Christ. And when we read about God's righteousness, we are not referring in this passage to God being right, God being just. Is the righteousness, the justice that comes from him and is bestowing upon us. 
is his righteousness given to us. Not necessarily as an attribute of him, but something that he is providing for us. So God provides what he requires, his own righteousness. Believe it or not, he is holy and he is providing holiness for us. He is righteous, so he's providing righteousness for us. So he is becoming the just and also the justifier. He is the one who is fulfilling and planning to do something for sin to be paid, but he provides the means of how we can before him and be declared just. So number one, the problem of righteousness is universal for all of us because we are all sin and we all need God's righteousness. Number two, the provision of righteousness is coming from him, from God. Verses 22 to 24, tell us about it. It is the unfolding narrative here in God's redemption in the verses 22 to 24, what is becoming the key or the cornerstone of this idea. Is shedding some light to, to the very heart of the gospel. Or like somebody says, these are the gods of the gospel. Considering that in the gods is the most important things in the human body. This section unpacks the unconditional and universal nature of God's righteousness as a gift from God to you and me who believe and trust in Jesus Christ. It's free, that's why it's a gift. Sometimes they are gifts that have strings, strings attached. But God's gift of righteousness is free. You have nothing to do with it. The only work that you have to do is extend your hand so you can receive it. That's what it is. It's available to us. So it's righteousness that is coming to us by means of faith, trust. Look at verse 22. Here the apostle is emphasizing the transformative point that cannot be overstated. Righteousness is available to faith in Jesus Christ. He says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Not for all people, but all those who believe. Who believe in whom? In God? Not necessarily. Who believe in Jesus Christ. There is a difference. There is a lot of people up there who are not Christians, who they call themselves believers of God. You ask them, do you believe in God? They will say yes. But they haven't trusted in Jesus Christ. So the conditional here is those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, depositing their faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe, for there is no distinction. It's not a social status. It's not a group. It's not a country. It's not ethnicity. For all, no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Remember the jump to the ceiling? We all fall short. We can jump more than the other ones, but we all fall short. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption. It's a key word here, redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a very interesting term. Think about the market for slaves that we see in the New Testament. Somebody saw some value on us and decided to pay a price so we can change masters. We were slaves to the bad master and now we become slaves to Jesus Christ. 
This is the redemption. He paid a price to purchase us from the slavery that where we were. That's what the word means in this case. Redemption, redeem. You get a, a gift card in the mail, and you have that is covered the numbers. You get a, need a coin and start scratching it. You, that's redeeming. You, you are basically doing something to, to, to get the price that you are receiving. The righteousness of God is not an outcome. It's not a price. It's not a, a reward for the deeds. It's not a moral standing. It doesn't have to do how good you are. The, the Greek term is pistis, which is the term that we use as faith. It means to believe, but even deeper, to trust. You believe when you came to this building that you can sit in the chair that you are sitting. But the time that you decided to deposit yourself in that chair is when you become to trust. You can believe, but you cannot trust. So the word here actually is better than just believe, is to trust. So here in the New Testament times, having faith was dangerous. They could be killed for professing faith. In our country, in our world today, somebody has faith, nothing happened to that person yet. It will change eventually. But here, the equivalence of that is trust. So you trust. In the poetic expression of this Greek term, phanero, means manifested. This is manifested. This is made known. In chapter 1, we saw that the righteousness of God was evident to the unbelievers and to the believers in their conscience and in the law. And here, he says, now it's not necessarily evident. Now it has been revealed. It has been manifested to you. It has been shown to you through faith. Not by faith, but through faith. So in this section, Paul is giving us this complex theology in just a few verses. It's remarkable that in the original Greek, all these things are just one word. Can you imagine one sentence? I don't know if you know who Robert Chisborough is. Anybody knows who this guy is? Robert Chisborough? For those of you who doesn't know him, you will remember him instantly when I show you something. He is the creator and the inventor of Vaseline, petroleum oil, ointment. When he decided to work on this thing, this product, this nasty thing, gooey, he was promoted this product as with, with, with a lot of uh, healing, um, I don't want to say powers, but healing properties. Nobody believed him. They thought he was crazy. So what he did was he cut himself and set himself on fire in the town where he was milling. And then he covered himself with this jelly several days. And then through the days when he recovered, everybody was amazed. And everybody started believing in Vaseline. You actually believe in Vaseline because you might have this one. At least I believe because I had this one. So it's interesting because Unless you become a satisfied customer and not pretending to be a professional salesman, 
you're not going to convince anybody about the gospel. Many times we share the gospel. And let me tell you, the four spiritual laws were shared with me more than four times. And I reject them every single time. Until the fifth time, they need to add the fifth spiritual law maybe. No, just kidding. I learned more, and, and then I decided to, 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 to believe and started reading the Bible. It's not about sharing the four spiritual laws. It's about living the four spiritual laws. Many times you might share the gospel, you might share the good news that Jesus loves people, but unless you are living that truth, many people will not believe that. If you don't believe me, think about your children who are not walking with the Lord. Think about your relatives who they don't want to work. There is something in us that is not connecting. I'm not putting the blame on you. Many times there's a lot of wayward people who decided to do to go on their own and rebel. But just, just in a normal situation, and I don't want any mail from you, in a normal situation, it will depend how is your testimony in front of people so they can understand that what you're saying connects with what you're doing. And that's the truth. That's what this man did. But at the same time, let me tell you something. God has good news for his people. But it was necessary for him to come here to receive the marks and the scars of the cross and to show the power of the resurrection so others can start believing in him. And if God is willing to try his own product, which is salvation, why we are not willing to commit to do the same. Paul is saying in this section how important it is to understand that we all need this righteousness that comes from him, that we need it from him. In Romans 22, 24, we read that. But it's for all, everybody, every kind. Lastly, we need to understand that Jesus is providing for us as a, as a lifetime, but it was not a, a cheap gift that we received from him. The price of righteousness is high. Verse 25 says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, mark the word, nobody likes the word, it's actually one of the few times that you find it in the Bible. We, I don't think you talked about this last week with your friends. As a propitiation in his blood through faith. The term stands as propitiation. The Greek one is hilasterion. That term is deeply rooted in the Old Testament concept of atonement or expiation. As a matter of fact, today, September 24th, the Jewish people around the world are celebrating the Yom Kippur. Do you know that? So how interesting and how cool is this that we're talking about this on Yom Kippur? What happened is, from the Old Testament, we understand that Yom Kippur is the day of the atonement, the day of the expiation. They were bringing to the priest, the high priest, two goats. In one goat, they pray over it, and then they deposit all everything to that goat, all the sins of the people, and then they let it go from the camp as a symbol of we're getting rid of all of our sins and is going to the wilderness. 
And then they keep the other one with them. They pray over it, and then they sacrifice it, and they offer it to God. It's so interesting that that practice was given by God through Moses, through the law. In many ways, when they designed the Ark of the Pact, the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant, there is a, a little place in the top of the Ark of the Covenant, and there are two angels, two seraphims in the top. That flat place that looks like a little platter is called the propitiatory or mercy seat. So when they kill this second animal, they bring the, the blood and sprinkle it on the top of that place, propitiatory. In other words, God told Moses, if you want to meet with me, let's meet each other at the propitiatory. When you bring the blood, I'll meet you there. Do you understand that? The importance of this? Because the word in many ways represented the propitiation. It's pain. He's asking God for forgiveness. So he was meeting them there. Well, Jesus Christ is our propitiation. And that place is the cross. In him, there was no need to, to two lambs. He himself was the one that they pray over and carry the sin. And he himself was the sacrifice. The Jewish people today celebrate Yom Kippur. Kippur means covering. And they celebrate today and every year and every year from generation to generation. But you and I, we don't have to do that. Because Christ did it once and for all. We don't have to do it. We need to trust him. He fulfilled what the law was requiring. And many of our good people, the Jewish people, they still believe in that they need to do their works in order to please God and earn their favor. So how important is to understand that your Yom Kippur is a little bit different because our Yom Kippur is called Jesus Christ. He is the place. He is the propitiation. And that place was the cross. That's the symbol that we have. God's righteousness was demonstrated. And he says, this was demonstrated his righteousness, God, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over, that's the term Passover, remember, the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he will be just and the justifier of the one who was has faith in Jesus. The term propitiation is important. So the cross of Christ is not just a symbol. It's the price tag of the righteousness. That's why it's a price tag that is eternal. Every time that somebody becomes a believer in Christ, receive that price tag, that receipt, meaning you are value, you belong to me, and this is a reminder that nobody can take away what I'm giving to you. So Christ's sacrifice is the cornerstone of our faith. A vivid demonstration of that. Next time when you ponder the righteousness of God, remember that it comes with a price. For you, it's free. You just need to receive it. There was a news not so long ago in a place in Florida. The judge did something interesting. They declared non-guilty a prisoner who obviously was committing a lot of sin, but he refused to leave prison for whatever reason. So the, there was a new law in that city 
that says something about that the freedom will be granted as long as the person is willing to accept it. And that's true. Your life jacket has been provided as long as you are willing to accept it. Your lifeline has been provided as long as you are willing to accept it. Salvation from condemnation, eternal condemnation, is being provided as long as you're willing to put your faith in the one who earned it for you, which is Jesus Christ. So God's righteousness is a free gift with an eternal receipt, available to all and paid for by Christ at the cross. Three things for you to take. As we conclude this sermon, believe on that. This life jacket represents God's grace, throwing us into a temp tempestuous sea of life, offering salvation. It's not as simplistic and superficial like anointment with Vaseline. It goes deep into our hearts. So the ritual sacrifices of Yom Kippur were foreshadowing to the ultimate sacrifice made by Jesus Christ on the cross. So three things for you. Contemplate God's true righteousness. Contemplate it. Understand it. Know the nature. In Romans 3, 1, 21, take the time this week. Meditate on what you heard today. Number two, embrace justification as a divine gift. Embrace it. Accept it. You got the gift, but you need to receive it. And lastly, acknowledge the immeasurable cost of your salvation. It was expensive. Brother, sister, God's righteousness has to be our anchor in these stormy times. We often think that the righteousness is a heavy burden to carry. But yeah, it's heavy. But it's solid. It will keep us in the balance that we need to. Justification is a gift, not a, not a chore. You don't have to earn God's love. That's grace. You know what great, great God's grace means? God's righteousness. At the expense of Christ. That's what the word grace means. God's righteousness at the expense of Christ. So I would like you to, to do something special. Because this is not a time not only for reflect. This is a time to celebrate. So I would like you to stand. To stand and recognize how important it is that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. That you are already receiving this precious gift of God's righteousness by grace. It didn't cost you anything, but it's giving you everything. So stand up and rejoice. For we are not guilty by clothed with God's righteousness through Jesus Christ. We were filthy, we were blue, but God covered us with Jesus' righteousness. And we are receiving his righteousness. So the next time, extend your one hand, extend your arm, open your hand, get the other one, make a fist. The next time that you see God's righteousness, think about yourself. God has declared not guilty. And do this. God has declared not guilty. Harder. It might hurt, but it's important. God has declared me not guilty. That's what justification is. It's free for you in Christ's warrant. In Yom Kippur, when they were closing the time, they were hearing the shofar, which is the horn of one of the animals. And when that sound was made, that means that the forgiveness was earned. Well, you will hear that sound today. 
But I want you to sing. And the reason that you're going to be singing is because you're going to be declaring what is exactly the reason why you can be rejoicing today.